Morning, friends. Uh, my name's Matt, and I'm the pastor here at our Prior Lake campus, and I'm so thankful that you've joined us today. Joel mentioned that today is Baptism Sunday on both of our campuses, and we get to celebrate what God is doing in people's lives. And as a part of that, you get cookies after the service. So we have baptism recognition cookies, and so we want to invite you to go ahead and partake and participate in those when the service is all over. Friends, uh, we received hard news as a church family yesterday uh, that a very beloved member of our family, uh, Milt Dvorak, had gone to be with the Lord. And I would like to spend a minute before we enter into a time in God's Word this morning praying for the Dvorak family. And they're, they're here today, and I really don't want them sitting there by themselves while we pray. And so if there are some of you who would be willing to come around and put hands on them as we spend some time praying for the Dvorak family, uh, that would be great. I'll give you a moment, and then uh, if you guys would join me in prayer together. Father, we recognize that your word says that we don't have to mourn like the world does as those who have no hope. But we do mourn and we hurt. And we recognize the, the greater the love relationship that we've experienced, the greater challenges that it's severed even temporarily. And so, Lord, we want to pray for you, the God of all comfort, to be with the Dvorak family today, to be strengthening and encouraging them during this time. Lord, continue to refresh their minds and our minds with the fact that what we experience here on the earth is temporary and troubling. But what you have promised your children is eternal and it's good. And we're thankful for that and pray that you'd continue to give them and us the eyes of faith to see Milt joined fully and firmly with his loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Praising his name, falling down at his feet, being raised back to his feet and experiencing the loving embrace of his Savior. God, we are so thankful that he is united with you today. We're grateful for what you did in order to bring him into your kingdom and to make him a part of your family. We're thankful for what you have done in working your fruit through his life. Lord, we just want to pray once again for you, the great God of all comfort, to be strengthening and encouraging and bring peace that surpasses any understanding during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. I uh, just want to encourage you guys, keep praying for the Dvorak family today, this week, into the future. Uh, when you're like, hey, Matt's getting a little boring today. Great. Pray for the Dvorak family during that time. Those are wonderful opportunities. Uh, just keep praying for them in the midst of this time and this challenge. We are in a sermon series entitled, When God Says Jump. It's about the life of Abraham. Abraham's faith and God's covenant with Abraham. And last week we looked at Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 and the covenants that God made with Abraham in those two chapters. 
Now today, we're going to be looking at the account told in Genesis chapter 14 between those two chapters. But in order for us to fully understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 14, we have to have an appreciation for what life was like 4,000 years ago during the time of Abram. 4,000 years ago in the Middle East, uh, it was a, a dangerous and violent place. There were many cultures during this time all around where Abram lived where people would take children and sacrifice them in the fire in order to appease gods. Those who were weaker in society were vulnerable. Not just vulnerable to being made fun of. Vulnerable to being beaten, robbed, sexually assaulted, and murdered. If you were a family trying to live on your own in the wilderness during this time, out in tents, you were inviting attack from others during a time where it was nothing for people to come and take your life so that they could take your stuff. It was a violent and hard time to be alive 4,000 years ago in the Middle East. And so people began to band together into cities for cooperative protection. They began to come together first in cities and towns of tents. And then around this time, more and more of those cities began to be made up of brick houses, even with walls around them. It doesn't surprise you, knowing human nature, that within those cities, the strongest, most powerful, and wealthiest began to rule over the cities as kings and lords. They would hire for themselves militias or military in order to make sure they kept control over their town and city, as well as to defend it from any attacks from the outside. In Abram's day, Five significant city-states, these city kingdoms, began to uh, grow and pop up in the southern area just to the south of the Great Salt Sea. Uh, the most famous of these are named Sodom and Gomorrah. But there were five of these city-states that grew up during this time and ruled over this region just to the south of the Great Salt Sea. When Abram and Lot separated and went their own ways in the last chapter, Lot found himself and his whole household without protection. And so what did he do? He went and submitted himself to the king of the city called Sodom and came under the king of Sodom's protection for the sake of his family. These southern kings were strong and powerful but not nearly as strong and powerful as the kings and city-states to the east. The, the most powerful of these eastern city-states was called Elam, and it was ruled over by a tyrannical king named Kedola, Kedola Omer. Easy for me to say. Right? Kedola Omer. And Kedola Omer demanded tribute be paid by those southern cities. Even though he was hundreds of miles away, he demanded they pay them tribute along with many other cities in the region so that he and his army didn't march in and destroy their cities. And so these cities here in the southern area, year after year after year, paid tribute in gold and silver, herds and flocks to Kedolomer, the king of Elam. Until one year, the kings of these five cities in the south came together and said, 
we're tired of doing this. We're not going to pay this tribute to King Kedolomer anymore. And they decided that they wouldn't do it. Word reached Kedolomer's ears that they had rebelled against him and that they weren't going to make this payment anymore. And so he grabbed three kings that he had good relationships with in the east. And these four kings, led by Kedola Omer, brought their armies and began to march first to the west and then down south. They came along the king's highway to the east of the Jordan River. And we are told that they were destroying the cultures as they went along, destroying people's towns, people's homes, people's cities, and taking plunder with them as they made their way towards the southern cities. When they finally arrived down in the southern cities, the five kings and their army rode out to the Valley of Siddim in order to meet this eastern horde. And there there was what is known as the great battle of the nine kings. As these nine kings battled in the Valley of Siddim, there was tremendous violence and tremendous bloodshed. And it wasn't long before it became easy to recognize that the army of the south was not going to be able to stand up to the eastern invaders. And so the soldiers from the southern army began to run away in all directions. Genesis 14 says that many of those soldiers, as they ran away, fell into bitumen pits. Bitumen or tar pits were all throughout the valley of Siddim. And they would bubble up from the ground, uh, forming what is uh, essentially a, a hot asphalt on the top. But then the dust from the plains would cover over the bitumen and make it look like it was solid ground. Maybe if you were walking slowly, you'd recognize it. But if you were running in haste to get away from a pursuing army, you would not. And you'd fall into the bitumen pits and die. Genesis 14 says some of the other soldiers from the southern army, they just ran to the hills in order to avoid being killed and captured. The army from the east, having won victory there in the valley of Siddim that day, then entered in to the five cities and began to plunder and ransack them. They walked out of those five cities with everything valuable that those cities had. They had gold they took their silver, their herds, their flocks, and they took the people from those cities that they deemed most valuable. And when they took the people from those five cities, one of the people they took was Abram's nephew, Lot. There was one messenger who escaped all of that ransacking and pillaging. And he ran to Abram up at the Oaks of Mamre. And there he told Abram all that had gone on. He told him about the battle of the nine kings and how it had ended. He told him about all of the ransacking and pillaging of the cities. He told him about Lot being taken along with hundreds and hundreds of other people who would be captives of the kings of the east until they got tired of them and would end their lives. He told Abram the entire story about the battle, about the ransacking, and about Lot's capture. What could Abram do in this situation? 
That's nice, he told him. But what was Abram supposed to do about this? This army of tens of thousands of soldiers that had come in and defeated everyone in the region. What could Abram possibly do about this? He could chase them. He could go after them. And that's exactly what he does. He would go after them. Abram chose 318 soldier-aged men from his household. Now, I want you to think about that. He chose 318 men from his household. You may remember the first week we were in this series, I said, it's best to think of Abram's household as Abram Incorporated. Because there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are making a living off of all of the wealth of Abram in this situation. And he chooses 318 men from his household who have been trained to defend his household. And he is now going to lead them into battle. They're in pursuit of Kedola Omer and his army. Kedola Omer's army goes up and they settle just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And there they are celebrating their great victory. Abram takes a shortcut and makes his way up and soon finds himself taking his 318 men and devising a strategy. He waits until dark. And then when it is dark, he takes his 318 men and he splits them into teams or squads and they surround the army of thousands that Kedola Omer has. And then upon Abram's signal... All of those different squads that Abraham has made up of those 318 men all attack at once. And with the Lord's favor, they rout that army of thousands upon thousands. Kedola Omer and his army run. Abram drives them out of the region, never to return. Once Abram has driven this army of the four kings and all of their men out of the region, he returns and he finds the hundreds of captives, the herds, the flocks, the gold, the silver, everything that Kedola Omer and his army had taken, Abram now takes back. It's in his possession. And he heads south with it in order to return it to its rightful place. As Abram is heading south with all of the plunder from the region, he meets two kings. The first king is a mysterious figure. His name is Melchizedek, and he is the king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem. Melchizedek is not only the king of Salem, but we are told that he is priest of the Most High God. We have no idea how Melchizedek became a worshiper of the Most High God. We don't know anything about him or how he became one who calls on the covenant name of God. But he is not only one who calls on the name of God, but he is a priest who teaches others about calling on the name of God. And when Abram comes before this king of Salem... The king of Salem blesses him. Look at the blessing recorded in verses 19 and 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who is it that Melchizedek gives credit for the victory here? 
It is God who has brought the victory. And I think Abram agrees with him because what Abram does now is he offers a tithe to God through this priest of God. A tithe is a way in which we say, God, we recognize it all belongs to you and we're giving this tenth as a way of recognizing that it all belongs to you. And Abram is saying, God, all this belongs to you. The only reason we have this is because you won the victory. And so he gives this tithe in recognition that it is God who has won the victory. What a mysterious meeting this is. What a mysterious figure Melchizedek is. We're going to come back and touch on him again in a moment. But first, the other king that Abram meets as he heads south is the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom has a deal that he would like to offer to Abram. The king of Sodom comes to Abram and he says, Hey, look it, you have control of all of the resources of the region now. How about if we make a deal and you keep all the plunder and you give all the people back to me? The king of Sodom is like, Hey, I'm a king and it's really hard to be a king without any people to rule over. So could you give me the people back? And it's really hard to run all that I need to run without their tax dollars. Could you give me those people back? And my militia, it's kind of light now that you have all of the guys that were a part of it. Could you please give me my people back? Yeah, go ahead. You keep the gold, the silver, the herds, all of that. But give me those people back. What do you notice about this offer that the king of Sodom is making to Abram? He is offering to Abram something that is already rightfully Abram's, according to the customs of the time. Abram has defeated this eastern horde and to the victor go the what? That's right, absolutely. And that was absolutely how things were run at this time. Abram has overcome this other army, so now everything he has taken as the spoils of war rightfully belong to him. And the king of Sodom comes and says, how about if I'm really benevolent here? And I'll let you go ahead and keep the stuff and you give me the people. No, the stuff's already Abram's. That's how it works. I would have been really tempted if I was Abram here to say to the king of Sodom, wait a minute, Kedol Omer just took it to you. And then I went and defeated Kedol Omer and his army. I beat up the bully that beat up you. So how about if you shut your pie hole and stop making offers to me and I will tell you what the terms are that we're going to live by. Wouldn't that have been a temptation in this situation? Who are you to try and dictate terms to me? Think about the position that Abram is in in this. He has all of the plunder from the entire region in his possession. On this day, he can go from being a pretty wealthy guy and a pretty powerful guy to the most wealthy and powerful guy in the entire Middle East. And all he has to do is hold on to what is rightfully his through the battle that he just won. Will he do it? No, of course not. Listen to verse 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. This is a pledge, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram will take no plunder, not even a shoelace. Why? Because he's not entitled? No, he's entitled to every bit of it. That was the custom at the time. He refuses because he understands that God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. 
And Abram doesn't want anyone other than God to get credit when that blessing takes place. Abram doesn't want the credit, and he certainly doesn't want lousy king of Sodom to get the credit when he becomes wealthy and becomes a great nation. He says, God has promised that blessing, and I don't want anyone to get the credit here but God. And so I will not take any of this, or else you'll hold it over my head and say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. Nope, nope, nope. God has promised that blessing. We will make sure he gets all of the credit. Because Abram is operating in faith here. What we see here is Abram operating filled with faith. What we see throughout this passage is all kinds of faith. I believe in Genesis chapter 14, as we read about the first battle to take place in the Bible, that this account from 4,000 years ago has very practical principles about faith that apply to our lives as followers of Jesus today. And I want to give you three, I think, very practical principles about faith that we see in this passage that apply to our lives as followers of Jesus today. The first one is this. Our faith is in the priest king. What, what do we make of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek? There's a lot of different answers that people have had over the years, and he's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. But I believe that what we see in Melchizedek is a picture or a foreshadowing of the priest king that the world needed. He is both priest and he is king, and one would come 2,000 years later to this city of Jerusalem, this city of Salem, who is priest and king and would bring salvation to the world. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17 says, For it is witnessed of him, Jesus, for it's witnessed of Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek, what is Jesus? He's a priest king. This would have been so unusual to the Jews who heard it. Because for the, for the Jews, there was a priestly line, and there was a line of kings, and there was to be no intermingling between those two lines. As a matter of fact, the first king, King Saul, tried to perform some priestly duties at one time, and he got in a whole lot of trouble for it. Because God was very clear, there are two lines. There's a priestly line, and there is a king line. But before Israel even existed, there was a king of Jerusalem who was also priest of the Most High God. And he is a reminder to us that 2,000 years later, one would come who would merge the kingly and priestly lines, and in so doing would bring salvation to his people. Our faith as followers of Jesus is in Jesus as priest and Jesus as king. Our faith is in Jesus as priest and Jesus as king. You can't seek to follow the rules of King Jesus without understanding the loving forgiveness of priest Jesus that makes that possible. You can't seek to gain the forgiveness of priest Jesus without understanding that his call is to submit your life to him as king. These two things go together. I, I was uh, talking to a friend a while back who was giving me his testimony on the phone. And as he was sharing his testimony with me, it sounded like a whole lot of testimonies in our day and age. He'd grown up in the church. And at some point when he was in elementary school, he'd heard a lesson about sin and salvation. 
about hell and about heaven. And the teacher during this lesson said, if you don't want to go to hell and you want to go to heaven, then come forward and pray this prayer and you won't go to hell and you'll go to heaven. He said, looking back, it seemed like a really small cost to go forward and copy a prayer that was being said in order to avoid hell and go to heaven. What happened in his life from that point forward? In his late teens, he began to live for every idol that the world had to offer and didn't pay any attention to Jesus whatsoever. Then throughout college and young adult years, no, no living for Jesus, only living for the idols that the world had to offer. Until in his late 20s, God used some circumstances I can't get into this morning in order to bring him back and to his knees before Jesus. And he recognized, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus where that is the focus of my life. I'm running after all of these idols out here. And when he summarized what had happened in his life, he said, ultimately, I wanted Jesus as my Savior, but I had no interest in submitting to Jesus as my king. Right? What, what did he want? He wanted Jesus the priest, but not Jesus the king in his life. Some people make mistake on the other side of the spectrum. And they really want to follow the rules of King Jesus and earn good standing with God by following the rules that God has given without recognizing that there's no reason to follow the rules unless Jesus, our priest, has been a substitute on our behalf. Obedience to the king that isn't motivated by forgiveness of the priest becomes self-glorifying and legalistic. Obedience to the king that isn't motivated by forgiveness of the priest becomes self-glorifying and legalistic. As his followers, we have faith in Jesus as our great priest and our great king. And we hold on to those things together. That's faith lesson number one that we see. Melchizedek is a gospel reminder to us of who it is that we place our faith in. Faith lesson number two we see in this passage. Faith gives God all the credit. When we are operating in faith, we give God all the credit. Melchizedek is a man of faith, and he says about this victory, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And as I said, I believe Abraham agrees with him and says, Yep, we gained this victory because it's all about God. I'm going to give a tithe because he deserves all of the credit, all of this is rightfully his. Wouldn't you have been tempted? Uh, am I the only one in the room who, if I was Abram in this situation, would have been tempted to say, Melchizedek, how about if I buy you dinner tonight? And I tell you a little bit about my thinking that went into some of the strategic decisions around this victory. L let me tell you about what I was thinking when I decided to wait until it was dark and kind of the strategic thoughts I had about why we put these clusters of men all around the encampment. Anyone? Anyone be tempted to say, by all means, let's give God most of the glory, but how about a little bit of glory for me as the person who thought up all these ideas? No? Only me? I'm the only one? Is that what you're telling me? Right? There, there's something right, in the broken part of us that, I mean, 
Okay, even if I'm going to give God most of the glory, I want a little bit for myself. But we don't see that from Abraham and Melchizedek. No, we want God to get all of the glory here. He's the one who won the battle. And when Abram talks to the king of Sodom, he's like, no, I don't want any of this stuff because I don't want you getting the glory when I am ultimately blessed. God has made those promises. He's going to get all the glory for my blessing. Every bit of the glory. I remember when my son was little, uh, I don't know, three, four years old. He had this uh, little orange basketball that would fit in his hand. And he loved to shoot hoops with this little orange basketball. But inside our house, we, we didn't have a hoop, which meant dad's arms were usually the hoop. And so we'd go in the family room, and he'd take his little orange basketball, and he'd start shooting, and I was the hoop. And because he was three or four years old, he wasn't real accurate with some of his shots. But because dad was the hoop, and he was younger and a little more mobile in those days, he never missed, right? The hoop would go over here, and then the hoop would jump over there, and the hoop would go up here and down on the floor. The hoop was going everywhere, and he would never miss. And then one day, three- or four-year-old Isaiah was getting a little high and mighty about how many shots he was making, and Dad decided to just stand still. Go ahead. And he just kept missing shot after shot after shot. I think ultimately he wound up in tears, Yes, mean dad. Get him. He, he didn't recognize that all of the success that he was experiencing was because of dad. When we're operating in faith, we recognize every bit of the success that is going on around us in life is because of Abba, dad. That he's the one who's doing it. I, I didn't choose where I was going to be born, when I was going to be born, what kind of family I was going to be born into, what kind of era I was going to be born into. I didn't make any of those choices. I didn't, I didn't choose what kind of gifts I might get or what kind of talent. God did all of that. And so anytime we have any success, whether it comes to our family, whether it comes in our, our work, whether it comes in our church, whatever it is, all credit and all glory goes to him. Every bit of it when we are operating in faith. I just want to give you a moment here in silence to think about that. Think about areas where you've experienced some success. And how you can, like Abram and Melchizedek here, pay all glory, honor, and credit to God in those areas. I don't think this is self-serving. I believe this is true. One of the things that we want to be absolutely true at Friendship Church is that any time this body of believers experiences any sort of success, we want every bit of the credit and glory to go to God. We don't want credit and glory going to some leader or some committee or some curriculum or some program. We want every bit of the credit and glory for what has taken place to go to God in those situations. We want it corporately and we want it individually in our lives. When we're operating in faith, God gets all of the credit. Final faith lesson. Faith produces courage. You can probably tell where that comes from out of this passage. Right? Faith produces courage in us. I mean real courage. 
genuine courage, not pretend courage. You might have heard the story of the guy who showed up to brag to his buddies holding the tail of a lion in his hand. And he bragged to them that he had cut the tail off of a man-eating lion. And his friends, annoyed by his bragging, asked, why didn't you cut the head off of a man-eating lion? And he responded, because someone else had already done that. Right? That's not genuine courage. Right? <laughs> I love the delayed reaction of a couple Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, that's awesome. Faith in God produces genuine courage in us to do the things he's called us to do because of the promises that he has made in our lives. We're willing to do things that are improbable, unlikely, even impossible because we have all faith in him. Who would march after an army of tens of thousands of soldiers who had just swept through the entire region, defeating every army in their way with 318 guys. Who would do that? The kind of person who had been promised by God that this land and its blessings would all belong to him and believed the promise of his God. The kind of man who believed that if God stood with him, it didn't matter who stood against him. That kind of man. What kind of person would risk their reputation in order to share the message of Jesus and their own testimony with friends and neighbors around them? The kind of person that has courage that flows out of faith in God. What kind of person would take on a, a new ministry or service opportunity that they've never done before, not knowing if they were fully equipped to carry it out? The kind of person who had faith in God and courage because of that. What kind of person would have the courage to confess sin to a fellow believer and an area of struggle to a fellow believer so that they would come alongside and hold them accountable and pray for them? The kind who has courage that is spurred on by faith. What is it that God is calling you to in faith right now that would require courage. It's not comfortable, not easy. It would require courage for you to enter into it. What is God calling you to? To step out in faith and to have courage. You may be saying, ah, when I think about that, I get scared. That's great. You can't have courage if there's not fear. I love the quote from World War I hero Eddie Rickenbacker who said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Amen. Courage is not an absence of fear, right? Courage is having faith in God so that he can overcome those fears as we act with him. If you're afraid, that's perfect. You're right where he wants you to be. Faith produces courage in us to do the improbable, the unlikely, even the impossible, knowing that he's the one who's going to do it for his name's sake. I want to encourage all of you to just bow your heads with me for a minute, and would you take a moment and just think about what is God calling me to? What is he calling me to? What, what does his word tell me to do? 
that I want to be obedient to. It's going to take courage, but I have faith to step out in this. Just take a moment and think about that. One of the ways that our faith grows, the way that our faith grows, is by drawing closer and closer in intimacy to Jesus Christ. By worshiping him and being with him, and we want to enter into a time of intimacy and closeness with Jesus as we participate in the Lord's Supper. As we do so, we recognize that we are worshiping the priest king who has given his body for our sake, represented by the bread, who has sacrificed his life and shed his blood, represented by the cup, so that we might be saved. When you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to take these elements with us today. And the band's going to play up here and play a song. And as that happens, you can go and get the elements at the four tables that are in the corners. And when you have those elements and you're ready, go ahead and take them. You're not going to hold them. And normally we hold them and I'll have us all take them together. But today I want to encourage you when you're ready, go ahead and take those elements that represent Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Father God, what, what goodness there is in what you have done. We are so thankful for the sending of priest King Jesus who has paid the price on our behalf. We submit ourselves fully to you, King Jesus. We're thankful for this opportunity to worship you and glorify you and give you all the credit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.